Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider, presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my pals Evan Grant and David Moore. Uh, fellas, it's uh, it was a big w- weekend for uh, Dirk Nowitzki, who went into the uh, Naismith Hall of Fame, uh, Basketball Hall of Fame, of course, um, and uh, that makes several Mavericks that are in there now, obviously. Steve Nash was there. I got to tell you, I was a little offended that Steve Nash made the Hall of Fame before Dirk Nowitzki. Isn't everybody else? David? Well, he retired sooner. He, well, uh, I guess. He's still pretty good. No, he was good. Sorry that I don't you. Over, he's a two-time You're not MVP. like Canadians? Well, yeah, that's it. I hate Canadians, those hosers. Uh, no, he's, he's a two-time MVP, and Dirk's a one-time MVP. But I don't think there's any question who's the better player, right? I mean, I think Steve Nash went to uh, Phoenix when they uh, Mike D'Antoni was there, and he's a he's the every point guard that ever played should want to have Mike D'Antoni as their head coach, and he he made Steve Nash into a two-time MVP. Uh, but I would have loved I, to I, have I like seen Steve them Nash. both continue. Yeah, I would love to have seen them continue their career together a little bit longer. Uh, I think oh, that clearly would have been that. like a, a Stockton Malone sort of thing. You know, they would have had, they were right there with them. And, uh, but they moved on from Steve. And, and look, it was, in some ways, I think Dirk got better at some things because Steve wasn't there. You know, I think after, after Steve left and then Avery Johnson came in, they, you know, they really used him and developed his low post game just enough to give him a, a change of pace, Dirk a change of pace that I think really helped him and and took him to the MVP level. But uh, I also thought it was funny is his acceptance speech where Dirk uh, thanked uh, because Jason Kidd was also on the stage and he thanked uh, both of them and said how much it meant to play with them. And he said, I just wish I would have gotten you both when your careers were a little better, which was a uh, <laughs> typical Dirk. Who is also very self-deprecating to himself above all else uh, throughout the ceremony. Well, absolutely. Yeah, Dave, I'm not sure that the the Mavericks could have won that title with Steve Nash as the point guard. I I see your point, and it certainly is well understood, and, and it's hard to let a guy of that caliber walk, and that's, that still seems like a mistake. You you could have done a lot of other things. You could have signed him and then traded him. I mean, there, there are different things that could have happened. But I think for sure – that uh, w- what we saw happen with the addition of Jason Kidd, and, which didn't work out right away, uh, but it did obviously eventually, and, and Tyson Chandler, Deshaun Stevenson. There was a much tougher uh, lineup to build around Dirk. Uh, Dirk, in a lot of ways, much the same kind of player Luka Doncic is, and, and I think that that shows now in what the Mavericks are trying to do as they're building around Luka, you know, we, we've seen that all all uh, ever since the season ended, right? All summer was about going out and getting athletic guys, uh, good defenders, very versatile, to build around him, to build up better. Because we saw what they had before. It was a, a more offensive-oriented team, and it just didn't work out uh, as well. And that's the same thing that happened with Dirk's career as uh, too. Oh, I agree. And I, and I want to turn this into Steve Nash because we're talking about uh, Dirk uh, and what he did. But, you know, I will say very quickly, when they let him go, they did get nothing in return except cap space, which they used on a on a journeyman center. 
to give them a presence in the middle. And he went on to win two MVPs. You would have built that team differently around if you would have kept both of them. But but I want to switch real quick and, and really not kind of focus on what Dirk said as much as where where does he rank in the pantheon of Dallas sports icons? And And I would argue that... If we're talking, I'm not talking about a Mount Rushmore. I'm talking about. No, you're talking uh, about Pantheon, which I saw last month in Rome. Did you? Was it good? Yes. I, I knew you would bring it back to that. I, I saw your eyes light up as soon as it, <laughs> it, it was closed when I went. So I just got to see it from the outside. But, but, um, I, you know, rather than a, a Mount Rushmore approach, I would like to throw this out. I would argue that Roger Stallback and Dirk Nowitzki are the most beloved sports icons in Dallas-Fort Worth history. And to me, that's a little bit... Now, look, you can argue they're both on the Mount Rushmore, too, but this isn't a Mount Rushmore. This is beloved. I would argue those two are at the top of the list. I th- and I think, David, in a podcast that preceded you, I think we had this conversation about the... I think at that point in time, the subject was coolest athlete in Dallas history. And uh-huh. up there, but I, I'm just going to before Kevin weighs in, and I know Kevin's going to disagree with what I'm about to say, but I would almost argue now that Dirk is the most beloved athlete in Dallas Fort Worth history because what I'm learning the older I get, we have less appreciation of older history. Um, it's <laughs> recent history, recency bias, and quite frankly, a lot more and more, unfortunately. More and more of the people who saw Roger Staubach are no longer with us. So their appreciation of Staubach is all from either film or from what their parents handed down. And I would say at this point in time, Dirk is universally beloved, is still on the scene, um, still something of a contemporary. I think you could make that case that he has surpassed Roger in some ways. I think it depends on how you want to. Defi- it depends on how you want to define this stuff, you know. Right? Uh, when you, we we talk about beloved, what what do we mean by that? Do we do we mean that? Gosh, what a great guy! You know, he's, he's a great player and a great guy. Uh, certainly, Dirk is that. I, I, I've written this column probably a couple of times that uh, there was never a greater athlete with a smaller ego in this market than Dirk Nowitzki. That's not even close. Roger Staubach is a great guy. Uh, there's no question about that. But Roger's got a big ego, you know, and rightfully so. I mean, he was a great player he, and, and uh, a great athlete, and he's very good at shielding that. But his ego is a lot bigger than Dirk's. I mean, there there was a time, and, and we read about this, uh, when uh, Don Nelson uh, was afraid that, and, and Donnie Nelson were both afraid that maybe Dirk didn't have enough of that. Maybe he didn't have enough ego uh, to make himself into a great player, he didn't have that killer instinct. You got to have that as a great athlete, right? If you if you don't, you, you're just not going to to rise to that level. So, from from the standpoint of great person, uh, we know the things that Dirk has done uh, for those kids in the hospital uh, that he's done with, without any until Brad Townsend finally just dogged him into letting him uh, follow him along to do that story. That's one of the uh, best stories I've read about an athlete in this market. Uh, so uh, I don't think there's any question that Dirk is the best combination of athlete and person uh, that this market has probably seen. Uh, 
Uh, and that's not to denigrate anything that anybody else has done. I just think he has both of those things going for it. But I w- will say that there are a lot of people in this market who just don't care about basketball and don't care about the Mavericks that much. Uh, and so that deflates a little bit, I think, the popularity of him as, as an athlete. You know, uh, that's what inflates Cowboys, right? That's what makes them, those guys rise to that level is because they're so great. That's why when Evan has brought up before about the popularity of Nolan Ryan and Pudge Rodriguez, and, uh, and with Rangers fans, certainly Pudge is right up there at the top. I don't know that Pudge ranks that highly with just fans across the board in this market. Certainly Nolan Ryan does uh, because his his appeal extends far beyond just the Rangers. Well, the and Texas I would, these, ties, and there, I, there's, there's a lot more than just the athlete. When I would almost do it. Absolutely. I would almost do it this way in Dallas, right? Dirk in Texas, Nolan nationally, Roger, because Roger had more of a national profile, really, I think, than either of these two guys. And he oh, was I think so, probably. Yeah. Well, it's actually a very good rating, Evan. Can you say that again? That's yeah. probably the best. I can't believe you said that. Could you say that again? That was really good. <laughs> I mean, I, I just think on that level, right? I think for Dallas, for oh, people, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that is the thing that at that point in time, Roger was the quarterback on America's franchise, and he was Heisman Trophy winner. You know, Captain America. So, and again, remember the times too. This is also about reflecting your times yep. and or, or place, which is why Nolan is so high because he. I mean, if you want to put together a prototypical Texan, doesn't Nolan kind of exemplify all of that? So, I mean, it's 100%. it's time, it's place, and times change. And But, you know, yeah, and going back to what you said, Kevin, he is there, – there is not an other, another elite athlete that has reached the levels that Dirk has with the temperament that he has. I've just never seen it. Because you're right. Well, you know, I mean, Charles, it's like. Charles Barkley called him the nicest man he's ever known, you know? So, I mean, yeah. I think that's, I think that, that says something about him. That's, I think that people held that against him in the NBA early on in his career and they didn't respect him because of that. I think some of the media didn't respect him because of that. Uh, and there were some people in this market who wrote to them. Well, I agree. Cause the, you always heard stories about how he's not tough. Right. Yeah, and he's, yeah, and he you always know, the, heard stories about is, how he wasn't tough and he's a soft European player. I'll tell you what, he got the hell beat out of him. And there's something to be said about being resilient and continuing to come back in that and never complain, which is what he did, but that wasn't admired enough in my in my mind early in his career. No, no question about that. No question about it. And, and of course, the, the, what happens is in a lot of these careers, right, is when they're uh, the, the longer you go, uh, the more you're respected. You know, Dirk played 20 years in this market. So that, yeah, just hang that, around. Yeah. yeah, just hang around and play long enough and people will really respect you. The fact that Nolan pitched until he was 46 years old, uh, you know, the, when, when Nolan came to the Rangers, uh, you know, I remember – People in Houston were like, ah, he was a 500 pitcher here. Big deal. There was a, there was a lot of that in Houston when he left. And uh, and so when he came here and then he continued to do those things, to add the no-hitters and, and then, then went to 300 games and the 5,000 strikeout and all of that and doing that into his 40s, well, 
he became a legend. If Nolan had not come to Texas to to Arlington to play, I don't think he'd be regarded the same way that he is now. Uh, I think that it, it really ratcheted him up to a different level when he came to the Rangers. And I think that, you know, the fact that the, the Rangers uh, gave him that opportunity is something that it was, you know, Tom Green will tell you over and over again that he gave the Rangers credibility, which he did. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. But they gave him an opportunity to do something to cement his status that I don't think would have happened had he not come here. But Nolan also, the other part about what you just said, Kevin, the other part about Nolan is forget all the all the milestones. You can't forget them. But the fact that he did this into his 40s, right, people love old guys. And well, Nolan, they love old guys who can play. You well, know, uh, you can't unless play, they're they old. Don't, they'll love it. No one and and I haven't found the respect thing with the old aging sports writers, I, I must say, too. I, I, I do see that with athletes. I don't know that that same it's respect is afforded. I, I also will just say this, and this is we're getting off topic, but I'll just leave it at this. Nolan's legend in large part was built by the stuff that Nolan did here in his 40s. But you also have to give credit to the PR legend, John Blake, that helped build the Nolan legend, you know, even a little higher. And... Um, made Nolan the event that Nolan was once he got here. He pitched well. And well, they certainly did a better job. Yeah, the Astros did – I mean, the Rangers did a much better job than the Astros did of, of all of that. Uh, the Astros kind of screwed that all up, and that was a lot to do with ownership of the Astros at the time. So uh, that was very beneficial to everybody involved that he did come and finish his career with the Rangers. All right, let's, let's move out of our. Have we not, uh, have we not talked talk. about tattoo enough here? Have we not talked no, about tattoo not. enough here? We did not, and we're not going to either. Um, so uh, that, no, there. Listen, there are other guys in this market who who are who are great. Are. We're not are. trying to say that there were not. And there I'm just were saying these who are transcendent. Yeah. Yes, these are the ones that everybody will always talk about and always remember. Although you know, Jerry West told me that Luka Doncic will be a bigger star than Dirk. Uh, now he's going to have to play another ten or fifteen years in Dallas to accommodate that. Uh, but I think that uh, that's what he was talking about—the level he could play at. So we'll see if, if Jerry's right. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit now about uh, the Rangers and the, uh, what's been going on uh, with them uh, over the last few weeks since the trade deadline, since the All Star break. Uh, you know, they floundered around in July, and now they're playing really well. A lot of things going on, a lot of things that have happened really well uh, have helped them uh, to establish that. Uh, I don't think there's any question about the uh, the additions of Max Scherzer in particular, who pitched a great game uh, Monday night, uh, seven innings, eleven was eleven strikeouts. Uh, was it one walk or no walks? I can't remember, Evan. What, what was that? Uh, one hit. I don't know if there were any walks in there. I don't think he walked anybody. Yeah. Yeah, pretty phenomenal uh, ways pitched since then, you know. And I was looking around to see some of the, you know, those the guys that the Rangers had targeted. Lance Lynn has pitched very well for the Dodgers since uh, their, that acquisition. Uh, Justin Verlander has made two starts for the Astros. Um, won one, lost one. Uh, pitched about the same in both of them. Pitched certainly well enough uh, to win. Um, I, I think. You know, Evan, we, we looked at these guys and saw that really, you know, Verlander's been pitching really well before the trade was made, but none of these guys were having great seasons. Uh, and yet, 
now they all seem to be pitching very well. And, and we think that's just because that's the kind of guys they are, right? You move these guys off of teams that aren't pitching well, that aren't playing well, and all of a sudden they start playing better, and that's uh, kind of what we expect of them, isn't it? Well, I, I mean, let, just to take the – I don't want to spend a lot of time on Lance Lynn, but to use the Lynn example, I, I listen, I think the combination of his desire and what I know of him as a competitor and the Dodgers' um, – edge when it comes to analytics and game planning uh i think was going to make for a really good mix but i was convinced that lance lynn would be a good pickup for any team in the race because i think the guy's desire to win again is so extreme that he was going to do what it takes to to perform on a good team and let you know you look at the white Sox and they are a complete and total disaster and have imploded even more since the trade deadline. So um, I think getting him out of there was going to be a good move for anybody. I think that's why the Rays were interested in him. I think certainly, you know, you can't dissuade the, or, or can't diminish the fact that John Daniels, who signed him here, is is with the Rays. I think that's why the Dodgers were interested in him. And I think that's why, to some extent, the Rangers were interested in him as well. But, Kevin, I, I just want to go and, you know, you look at, we're going to talk about Scherzer, and Scherzer is obviously the sexy name. But the Rangers went out and acquired three pitchers at the deadline. And they've gotten nine and two-thirds scoreless innings from Chris Stratton, who was not the sexiest reliever on the market at that point in time. They've gotten two solid starts from Jordan Montgomery, and they've gotten three from Scherzer. And the three of those guys have combined for a one seven three ERA in 30 and 40 innings since they've come over here. That's that's huge. That, that, that is huge performance. Um, Rangers won three of the or four of the five starts that, that Montgomery and Scherzer have made, and I think that Stratton has pitched almost exclusively in in winning situations. So um, I also don't think we should be terribly surprised because look, one thing that even though the Rangers did not perform well on the field the last four years, I think you have pointed this out and I have pointed this out. When it came to going out and acquiring pitchers in free agency, and when they could target pitchers that they wanted, um, they did a really good job, particularly in the mid-range market for free agents. Uh, I don't think it was rocket science to go out and say Max Scherzer, even with not great numbers this year, is a frontline starter. I know a lot of Mets fans on my social timeline, my social media timelines, were, "Oh, he's he's done, he's over." And I, I wanted to say to them. No, it, it's your team that's over, and, and, and it's the Mets that are a mess at this point. Um, and I think the same thing goes for Scherzer, that you know he knows that the opportunities to win now are few and far between, and I think going back into a playoff race without the distraction of all the drama that went along with the Mets was important for him. But I think the Rangers have just done a really good job overall in going out and getting pitchers. And I said this last week, and I'll say it again, I don't think you can overlook the importance of Mike Maddox having familiarity with all these pitchers and making the transition that much more seamless. Because usually you do see a situation where a pitcher goes to a new team and he may struggle for an outing or two before he gets things in line. I, I should just say before we leave this subject that we do we should point out that Michael Lorenzen, who the Phillies acquired, did throw a no-hitter. So there's another pitcher who's done pretty well. Yeah, no question about that. Well, you brought up, uh, you know, Mike Maddox and the job he's done. You know, Dane Dunning, 
who has pitched really well uh, since the deadline as well, uh, as has John Gray, for that matter, uh, and, and Andrew Heaney. Basically, all the starters have picked it up uh, since the deadline. We talked about that last week about, you know, shouldn't these guys have already been pitching well? Um, but it, it certainly seems to have been a motivating factor, I think, in guys wanting to, to remain in the rotation uh, and not be dropped like Martin Perez was. Um, but Dane Dunning talked about some of the things that Maddox was really emphasizing to him. And, and you know, uh, we saw flashes of Dane Dunning after the trade uh, from which they acquired him from the White Sox that made you think, oh, maybe this guy could be a nice, you know, three, four, or five, you know, pitcher. Because um, he's had good command and just seemed to struggle early in games and that sort of thing. Then he just kind of, for whatever other description you want to call it, he just seemed to kind of flounder to me uh, for a while. And now he's starting to look like a really good pitcher. I mean, I, I don't want to compare him too much to a guy like Kyle Hendricks, but he feels like a guy to me that should be able to work fast, throw strikes, uh, move the ball around a little bit. He's getting a lot more strikeouts lately than he normally does. I don't know that he's going to be that kind of pitcher. But I think that there's, there's no reason that Dane Dunning shouldn't be a very solid starter. No, I, I think that's what the Rangers traded for him to be. I don't think they ever expected this guy was going to be, you know, the ace of the staff. Um, but he's certainly pitching to the upper upper levels of his of his ceiling. I think at this point. Um, and and listen, he was he was very solid in 2021 when the Rangers had very strict pitch limits on him. He was dealing with a hip injury for a lot of last year that I think did impact him. Um, but this year, yeah, he's he, he he adapted to the bullpen role really well, um, and I'm still not so sure that come the playoffs that won't be a role for him. Um, and then he moved into the rotation and has continued to pick it up. Good pace, growing strikes. He's got a good defense behind him, which is able to turn double plays at a better rate than last year, which is a real asset for him. And lately, we've seen we've seen significantly significant improvement in in the strikeout. So. I, this is what you hope for on winning teams is that guys improve, right? And Dane has done nothing but but show that this year. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, he was a fill-in, right? Because he filled in for Jacob DeGrom, and it just goes to the whole theme of what this team has done all year is regardless of the injuries that they seem to have faced, somebody has stepped in and really – performed well. Most recently, what we've seen is Mitch Garver stepping in at catcher and and reaffirming what the Rangers thought they were getting when they signed him, a really good offensive catcher. Uh, Dunning's done that all year. Um, you know, Ezekiel Duran did it for Josh Young, for, for Corey Seager when he was out of the lineup. Uh, so they have, they have gotten contributions from fill-ins. And this weekend, and we can talk a little bit about this, but this past weekend, you know, I don't I don't envision J.P. Martinez being a starter down the stretch, but they called up J.P. Martinez to help them win. That's why he was called up, and he contributed to a couple of wins uh, over the weekend, and he has played well, and he has done nothing but kind of demonstrate to them that, yes, maybe this guy could be a weapon for them on a specialized playoff roster as a fourth outfielder, defender, and runner. Yeah, uh, I'm intrigued by, by J.P. Martinez and what he might be. And uh, it's interesting because, obviously, well, they brought him up instead of Bubba Thompson. As a matter of fact, they DFA'd 
Bubba Thompson, who was then picked up by the Kansas City Royals, the uh, Rangers Farm Club. Uh, so, you know, Bubba was a first-round draft pick. Uh, I guess what Bubba and Cole Reagans were uh, 16 and 17, right? Uh, the first-round picks. And both of those guys are gone to the Royals. Um, now, Cole was not released. He was part of a trade that, that brought the – the Rangers are rolled as Chapman, and, and I don't have any problem with that deal. I do think that Cole still has potential to be a, a, a nice starter, and it was hard to lose him. But, you know, sometimes you got to make hard decisions based on what a guy can bring you. And I think that the, the Rangers definitely needed a role as Chapman, uh, and he has played that role very well since he's uh, been acquired. Um, but it is interesting to me to see how uh, the guys that the Rangers were counting on for years have – slowly been pushed aside uh, now, and some of them gone. Uh, and we, we see that now with Bubba. And I'm wondering, you know, what's the future for Leody Tavares? Uh, he's had a good year, and, he, and he's played well, and, of course, they counted on him forever. And he has uh, been, you know, good in the field, and he's been pretty good at the plate most of the year, but he has struggled lately. And I'm just wondering, Evan, is, is the is the clock ticking on him? I mean, you've got Evan Carter, a top ten uh, prospect in all of baseball. Uh, you've got Wyatt Langford, the first round draft choice this year out there. Uh, and I'm just wondering, uh, we we kind of guessed earlier in this spring that Evan Carter would get a good chance uh, to make the roster in in August. Uh, that didn't happen now, I think, for, for a lot of reasons. One of them being they, they if they're playing this well, there's no need to start his clock uh, in the big leagues uh, and let him come in next year. But I'm thinking that, you know, if he's playing really well the rest of this year and then, and then when he comes to spring training and plays well, uh, how is Leody going to hold him off? Well, I mean, I, look, I, these questions have been raised because of Leody's poor second half, and he's sitting under 200 since the All-Star break. Uh, I think his batting average has fallen nearly 40 points since the All-Star break from 300. To, I think it was 263 going into last night before a pair of hits. And, yeah, you know, if, if you don't take the next step forward, and the next step forward for Leody was to was in the Rangers' shortening of their window, to going from rebuilding to contending this year, I think it cut down a little bit of the idea that Leody could just take a step forward. He's taken a step forward this year. He needed to take a leap forward to be a winning player right now. And I'm not sure if at the end of the year, if you will be able to say that. Um, or maybe perhaps a better way to say this is at the beginning of spring training next year, Will Evan Carter, with the steps that he's taken this year, be in a position to make that an even battle? And could he win? Could he win time as a regular? The only way Evan Carter makes this roster out of spring training next year is if he's a starter. Um, but I think certainly the gap has narrowed because the performance has tailed off for Leody, and the, the Rangers need to see some adjustments and need to see some uptick there. And Evan Carter has done nothing but get better this year. And then you do look at the outfield situation, and this is in large part why Bubba was why, why Bubba was DFA is J.P. Martinez had simply outplayed him at Triple O. 
Bubba had not shown at the big league level that he could really contribute to help this team win. He's going to Kansas City, a team that can afford to let a guy develop. And he may develop into a very good baseball player there, or at least a, a, an everyday player. Um, but this team's expectations have changed. So now you've got J.P. Martinez, who moved ahead of Bubba. You've got Evan Carter, who's moving close to the level of Leody Tavares. You've got Anthony Zavala at, at, uh, in the minor leagues. And then you've got two younger prospects in Langford, who's at Hickory, and Anthony Gutierrez. All of them are top 10 prospects in this organization, along with Dustin Harris. So there's a lot of depth in the outfield right now. And what that does is create competition. And what we have seen from the Rangers all year, uh, under Bruce Bochy and particularly under Chris Young, is they like competition. Well, yeah, absolutely. And and that's a good thing. Uh, and it certainly has worked out for them uh, at this point. I don't know, you know, watching these guys, I'm, you know, that was the big problem in the outfield, right, was that they didn't have any prospects in the outfield. That's how Odolis Garcia got a shot in the first place because they didn't have anybody that could, you know, make a challenge against him. Uh, that's why I think they hung on to Joey Gallo as long as they did because he had been a two-time All-Star, but also because who, who else are they going to play? Uh, there just wasn't a lot of competition for spots, and now there is. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that makes Ezekiel Duran – a potential trade piece still, even though he was not moved at the trade deadline, was because I think they've got enough guys in the outfield that, uh, that they might have a higher ceiling even than he presents. So uh, it is a, a really interesting time for the Rangers. You can legitimately see this them sustaining something now. It is, as Max Scherzer said the other day, simply about having enough pitching. Uh, I think they're going to have enough in their lineup now. And I think when the, the point you brought up about uh, with Jonah Heim and Mitch Garber, I, w- I will be interested to hear. I, w- I want to ask you this one last thing before we get out of the, Cow- of the Ranger segment so we can talk about the Cowboys. Um, but how do you think they're going to do this with Garber? I mean, the guy just continues to hit. Uh, as, as well as Jonah was hitting all year long, Garber is at, hitting at a torrid pace at the moment. I just don't know how you can take that bat out of the lineup for very long. Yeah, I think what you're going to do for the time being is you're going to see Garber start behind the plate against left-handers. And certainly if uh, if the Rangers face back-to-back right-handers, even if they have a third, a third right-hander on the third day, um, particularly if it's a day game after a night game, you see Garber behind the plate then. And I just have this theory that even though Mitch – is not a big fan of DHing. The combination here of getting more playing time behind the plate, reaffirming to him that he has some value as a catcher, getting continue, getting regular at bats between catching and DHing, and the fact that this team is playing for something, I think is going to up his performance a little bit when he does get at bats at DH. So I, I, I think that. These three weeks, listen, I made this point to Jonah Heim. I made this point about Jonah Heim in a column this weekend, and I, I, I think it, it extends beyond that. But the time off that, that Corey Seager got, the time off that Jonah Heim got, unfortunately the time off that Josh Young is going to get, I think all these things, and Nate Yavaldi as well, I think in the long term if the Rangers can stay the course and they've been able to do that so far, if they can stay the course, this is going to put them in position 
for a deep playoff run because they're going to have those four guys refreshed. And that can't be that, – that's an X factor. Um, I think that makes a big difference when you've got more guys fresh going into the playoffs uh, because it does tend to wear guys down. And so particularly when you're talking about catchers, particularly when you're talking about middle infielders, those are those are big advantages to have. And you've seen what this rotation has done now, Kevin, for the last three weeks, and it's done it without the guy who's been their best pitcher on. So you give Yavaldi a little bit of time off, maybe his velocity does come back, and maybe maybe all of a sudden now you're looking at Scherzer and Yavaldi as as a one-two, as good a one-two combination as any team would have in the postseason. Yeah, and, that, and that's a great point about being refreshed because, you know, I was just thinking about uh, back when the Rangers went to the World Series twice. Um, those teams, of course, were playing uh, across the street uh, in the open air. And uh, I, I wonder now, looking back on that, how the effect that it had on them. And I know that it had some on the pitching as well. Maybe we'll talk about that in, on one of these podcasts here pretty soon. All right, that's going to do it for the Rangers segment of our podcast. We're going to move over now to talk about the Cowboys and training camp. And Zach Martin returned uh, and got himself a little bump in the process, so that was good. Uh, We certainly think that he deserves that. He's now the third highest paid guard in the league. Uh, And I guess, what, David, $18 million a year? Is that what he's going to be getting now? Yeah, that's what the average will be over the final two years of his contract. And uh, this was not this was not an extension. This was just an adjustment and a pay increase on the final two years. And while the, the Cowboys, and, and, and they certainly believe this, had the leverage because Zach Martin had two years left on his contract, I always maintained Zach Martin had more leverage than the Cowboys were willing to concede. One, because he remains a remarkably effective player and is arguably still the best guard in the game, the most, and certainly still one of the most dominant interior offensive linemen. And two, no one is poised to take his place if he's not there. So this, the offensive line was already thin on depth. You take Zach Martin, who is the cornerstone of that offensive line, out of the mix. And you're really looking at a problematic unit, really the only problematic unit on the team uh, to start the season. So, uh, you know, I I was I just thought these negotiations were going to be very difficult. and, And really, you hadn't heard much until it just broke yesterday afternoon. And you began to wonder what the exit strategy would be. Well, the only exit strategy was for uh more money in the final two years because the other side of it is, uh, is is Cal you know is Zach Martin still arguably the best guard of the league? Let's say you take the argument that he is. Well, then you're going to say, well, why wasn't he the highest paid? Well, one, he was the highest paid when he signed this six year deal back in 2018 and was at the top of the pay scale at guards in the NFL for several years. But two, once this contract is done. Zach Martin will be 34 years old and he does not have an extension. It's just these two years. The fact he did not want an extension tacked on tells you he's at least contemplating retirement at the end of these two years or is open to it. I'm not saying he will retire in two years, but he's certainly open to it. Otherwise you would have had an extension and move this forward. So um, yeah, this set in motion were one, 
you're still in good shape here for a couple of years, but the Cowboys need to uh, accelerate the clock and, uh, you know, look for his replacement sooner rather than later. Yeah, I thought it was interesting when uh, Zach talked about how this all really got rolling, the, the adjustment on his contract after he had a face-to-face with Jerry. You know, I got the feeling that any player could walk in there and pull over Jerry in a hallway and get himself a new deal. I mean, I, I, I just I think that Jerry has the hardest time uh, being that guy, you know. So, yeah, I, th- I think you're exactly right. And, and there's a dynamic here that should not be overlooked, and that's the good cop, bad cop dynamic uh, between Stephen Jones and his father, Jerry Jones. Uh, Stephen is the one primary negotiator on all contracts, uh, even more so than he was earlier in his career. But you still often see Stephen will take a hard line with the major across the board, but even with the top players will take a hard line. And then Jerry swings in at the end as the good cop or the closer to kind of get the deal done. So I've seen this happen too many times to dismiss it as not a strategic uh, element on their negotiations. But that's where we are. I mean, uh, you know, you draw the line, you say the right things about precedent and and the financial pie and how it's split up and how if you give one guy more than the other, that's an issue. But uh, there are certain players that transcend a philosophical approach to building your cap, and Zach Martin is one of those players. Yeah, no question about that. And, you know, I, I want to take just a minute here, David, I don't think that we should miss the opportunity here that that both of these guys have been in the, in the news lately. One, Zach Martin for his holdout, and two, Johnny Manziel for this new look at his uh, life and career. Yeah. And, of course, we remember that draft uh, when the, I guess that was the 12th pick of the draft, and, uh, and Jerry was ready to go on Johnny Manziel. And I got to tell you, I was intrigued by the possibility. I still believed in Johnny at that point. I, I wasn't sure that he could be able to play in the NFL, but, you know, I'd, I'd seen what he'd done in college. Uh, that game against Oklahoma in the Cotton Bowl was one of the most remarkable performances I've ever seen on a college football field. And um, and then, you know, Stephen, obviously, as we know, said, no, listen, we, we got to go with this. David, let me ask you this, because I don't know that I've ever known this for sure. Was Steven saying we've got to take uh, Zach Martin or we, we we cannot take Johnny Manziel? So I got to ask you this, David, because I'm not really sure. Was Steven saying to his father, we've got to take Zach Martin or we cannot take Johnny Manziel? A, a little of both. Um, it was there was a cluster of players there. Uh, Aaron Donald was right around there, right? There was uh, the, the linebacker, I can't think of his name right now, that went to Pittsburgh. There was a cluster of three players who had a chance to be right there. And uh, the Cowboys were willing to take any of those, any of that group. They were all gone. Then they were on the clock and Zach Martin was there. And then Jerry, after having had conversations without people throughout the day, said, well, look, you know, I know we've talked this through, but come on, this guy's a quarterback. You're talking about offensive linemen. We can get an lineman elsewhere. And look, I was an offensive lineman. I know that, you know, and on and on and on. And it's, it's probably not an overstatement to, when you look at these two guys, Zach Martin and, and Johnny Manziel, 
and how different both are in their approach. One being flamboyant, uh, you know, uh, calls attention to himself. Another just being a, a solid guy who goes about his business and doesn't call attention to himself, um, but very disciplined in his approach, uh, slowly, you know, earns the respect of everyone in the locker room versus Johnny Manziel, who, because of his celebrity, would tend to distance himself from others in the locker room because he just operated in a different sphere. You know, it's almost, it sounds trite, but in some ways, that draft and that moment was kind of the battle for the soul of the Cowboys going forward, right? What were you going to value? And Jerry, the marketer, always valued flash and flamboyance. Uh, This is where Steven and the football people were going, no. In this case, no. We don't feel good about this, taking him here. This is a better player. This is where we should go. And and Zach Martin has certainly rewarded their personnel assessment uh, of those two players as this has unfolded. And... um, it's just to, to me. It's a, it's a fascinating counterpoint, and and even immediately after that draft, Jerry looked at Stephen and said, "Okay, but I tell you what, Stephen, you can't do anything special. You can't do anything great if you just play it down the middle all the time." And so this was really a a, a difference in the. This was like kind of the last flicker of wildcat Jerry, you know, coming through and going, well, I'm willing to take a risk even beyond what the potential reward may be. Whereas, uh, I really look at that moment as kind of bringing into balance because you always have to balance that. That's a good trait, but not if it's left unchecked. So, uh, to, to me, that moment where they took Zach Martin over Johnny Manziel kind of brought balance uh, to their personnel approach, which I, I think you've seen this organization play out since then, actually. Yeah, everywhere except the second round, uh, where they that's well, where, that's <laughs> another issue. <laughs> made it a little bit to the second round, but yeah, they, no, there's, I don't think there's any question about that. And that, and that's the that's the thing about making that kind of pick, isn't it? I mean, you know, we look at drafts and we all, we take them all seriously, and they're all a lot of fun, and we like to talk about what you would do and what you wouldn't do. But if you miss on a guy like Zach Martin, if you miss on a Hall of Famer to take a guy who's out of the league within a couple of years because he didn't take it seriously and didn't do what he should have done, how do you live with that decision? I mean, that, that to me uh, would have been – boy, that would have been really hard to take to watch that. And I, don't, I think that could, that could have gone down as one of the worst decisions in the history of the franchise. If you, if you miss a guy that ends up being a Hall of Famer – and you end up taking a guy who's out of the league in a couple of years. Sure. And, you know, right now you look at Cowboys history. Who is the best offensive lineman in Cowboys history? I think a lot of people, uh, and again, this goes to the recent bias we were talking about, but that doesn't mean it's not justified, would probably go straight to Larry Allen and say he was the most dominant, best offensive lineman in Cowboys history. Well, how far is Zach Martin behind that? Not, not far. And that, you know, uh, certainly John Madden said that about Larry Allen. And, and I would trust John Madden's uh, instincts about, about that position. I think the one thing about Larry Allen was that he played two positions. Uh, and and I, I'm not saying that Zach Martin couldn't do that. They just never really asked him to do it like they did Larry Allen. I, I think it would have been very intriguing to see uh, if he could have handled the, the tackle position as well uh, as he has guard. There was no reason to – to do that, they've had 
enough good play at tackle without that. I, that's what the one thing that would put I would put Larry Allen over that. It just you know, Larry, I mean, the guy's bench pressing seven hundred pounds. I mean, my gosh, that's it's just yeah. phenomenal. The, the the physical specimen that Larry Allen was. But yeah, Zach Martin is right there behind him, and I do think that you could probably say Zach Martin is maybe the second best uh, offensive lineman in, in Cowboys history, which is really saying something because they had some great ones back. They had some outstanding ones, yeah. And, and again, very quickly on that. Now, this was the 2014 draft, right? And you still had Tony Romo at that time, who would then go on to have his back problems. But two years later, you turn this thing over when you didn't want to turn it over to Dak Prescott. If Johnny Manziel was still here, you never would have taken Dak Prescott. No, probably not. Probably not. Because that was two years. That would have been to Manziel's third year. Uh, He would have started as a backup rather than the way he was thrown in in Cleveland. So you probably would not have seen enough of him, certainly in games, to move on from him. And you would say, well, no, this is his chance now. Let's see what he does. And I, I don't know that this team would have gone or look for a quarterback in that 2016 draft the way they did if they would have had Manziel. And uh, then where would this franchise be at the moment? So, it, it, yeah, the domino effect is dramatic. Yeah. All right, moving over here a little bit. We just saw that Zeke Elliott, after an extended uh, – it seemed like to me an extended uh, time on the free market, uh, signed a one-year deal with the Patriots. Uh, That sounds like the kind of guy – and really, if you looked at the situation, that's the kind of place you would have expected him to end up, wouldn't it? I mean, you would you would expect that? Yeah, and, and that's where you know he went and visited it with them right at the start of training camp, and, and they had a they had a running back injury that really uh, you know undercut their depth and uh, made that a, a a good potential landing spot for him. And you know he left there and didn't sign, and a lot of people were going, "Oh well." Uh, you know, Bill Belichick must have said, well, no, you know, let's do something else. They're not going to move on this. And and I had always heard that the Patriots wanted to do something then, but Ezekiel Elliott still had to wrap his head around the sort of money he was going to make to play this year in the NFL. There was still, you know, he he was in that adjustment period where he knew he was going to have to take less, but he still couldn't come to grips with how much less he was going to have to take and how it would need to be structured uh, to, to, to pay him uh, something that he would find not insulting to what he's accomplished in this league. And and that's what you did with this. It's basically a, a deal that can double uh, if you hit incentives, but he's betting on himself on, on hitting the incentives. Um, so we'll see how this plays out. Again, it's no, you know, the other guy, Dalvin Cook, was in the same market too. They were clearly the two biggest names on the running back market out there. Dalvin Cook also agreed to a deal yesterday with the New York Jets. So, uh, and like we said, the same day that Zach Martin ends his holdout. So you're you're getting to the point where all of these players are saying, Well, I know I'll be I know I don't need a full camp, but I know I need some to be ready to start the regular season. And you get an idea when these things hit with veterans on exactly how much camp and preparation time they believe they need to be ready and in peak, peak performance at the uh, start of the season. All right. Speaking of running backs, I don't want to get carried away here, but Deuce Vaughn uh, was ever. pretty good. Best ever. Yeah. Best <laughs> ever running back. Yes. He's going to break all of Emmett's records. Um <laughs> 
uh, had a pretty nice uh, effort there in that first game. And I got to tell you, I, I'm not surprised at all about that. It, you know, this was a guy who had a lot of production in college. And uh, I, I can remember a game, I guess that was in the, uh, the Big 12 championship game, where he had the ball in the open field, carrying the ball in the open field, and a, and a defensive back came up to him and he gave a little move inside and the guy, it broke the guy's ankle. The guy was six yards away from him when it happened. I mean, <laughs> that shows you the kind of ability he has where that guy who was so afraid of what Deuce was going to do and how he was going to move that he was freezing six yards away from him and he ran for a touchdown on the play. Uh, and not, not to say that, that a lot of running backs and maybe most wouldn't make those kinds of moves, but he just has a lot going for him. I just like guys with that low center of gravity. Uh, I, I don't think that it seems like they don't get hurt as much. They don't take as many direct hits. Uh, I, I just think that he can be very valuable in a certain kind of role. I don't, I don't know that he would ever be a lead running back, but I certainly think he can be a guy that can provide a really great change of pace for you in a lot of different ways. I do believe this is going to be a guy, a little like we were talking, not the same argument as Zach Barton. We're talking much different, you know, you know, athletic uh, profiles and, and everything going in. But there were, what, I believe 13 running backs taken before Deuce Vaughn. I'm convinced by the end of the, his rookie, this rookie season for all of them, people will be going, well, I can't believe all those guys were taken ahead of him uh, because I think he's going to be that productive enough to where people are going to notice. One, I found it fascinating during training camp that for a sixth-round pick, who some people going into camp said, well, he's not a lock to make this roster. I mean, let's, you know, let's see. I mean, how would they use him? and What can he do on special teams? Is such a limited package and all this stuff. But he was getting a lot of reps with Dak Prescott. You don't get a lot of reps with your starting quarterback early in training camp, if they don't have a package, uh, a defined significant package that they're going to use you in. Um, so there was that. Two, it was interesting after the game, and, and uh, you know, Mike McCarthy was asked, well, but how do you put into context, you know, a lot of this came in the second half, so you're talking to second and third team guys, guys who won't be in the league. Does that diminish uh, some of what, uh, you know, Deuce Vaughn did. And Mike McCarthy didn't hesitate, and he said, no, not at all, because whoever's out there is going to have to tackle him, and that's an issue. And and that's true. He has elite elusiveness in, in moves. And, um, yeah, he made second-team guys look bad, but he's going to do that with starters around the NFL, too. Now, he's not going to do it all the time, and his limitations of, of stature are going to impact just how productive he is and how much he's used. But uh, what, it's also interesting, when they put him in the backfield there to watch to watch in practice how the defensive linemen are, are straining and craning their necks around and trying to get see where he is because they lose sight of him. And so as elusive as he is, when you take another split second for a defensive lineman to try to find him, now suddenly he's up on you and he's by you. And so uh, I think it's going to be fascinating to, to see. I, I'm convinced he will be a weapon for them this year. 
I think so too. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's much, you know, there's a different kind of weapon, but it is much like the change of pace you got in the last couple of years with, with Tony Pollard and, and Zeke sure. Elliott. Uh, sure. And now you're going to have a different kind of thing as well. Uh, you won't have the, the, the pounder. You, you, uh, he's not the kind of guy, neither is Tony Pollard, that you're going to turn and hand the ball to him and send him into the line of scrimmage, you know, repeatedly. And, and and you're not really going to count him on that. But then they've got Rico Dowell for that kind of thing, you know, uh, and maybe that's the role he serves in that. Uh, I would assume that probably we'll see more three backs this year than we will just two backs, wouldn't you? No, no question. And just because uh, Tony Pollard is the unquestioned lead back, that doesn't mean he's going to get more touches than he had last year. I think that the Cowboys coaching staff feels they have a good – feeling on what his ceiling is and what his workload capacity is over the course of the season. And go back to last year, he wore down toward the end of the season, right? Uh, Late in the regular season, uh, they gave him a little bit rest, and then he looked good in the postseason uh, up until the the unfortunate injury against the 49ers early in that game, which which really tried to – you know, change the course of the game. But, uh, yeah, he's he's not going to get more touches or carries than he did last year. But that means it's going to be much more by committee after him. And Rico Dowdle and Malik Davis and Deuce Vaughn, however that shakes out, are going to be getting those touches. Because uh, Mike McCarthy is still very committed, and as the play caller, he's going to go toward this goal of getting 30 to 35 touches a game for your backs. So it's just how it's distributed. Yeah, I think it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. I think this is the one thing that will make fun about this preseason. You know, if no one else is playing, uh, this is kind of brutal to watch some of these games at times now with uh, with all these backups. But, you know, at least some of them will be interesting. And, and I think that these will certainly give fans at least a little buzz because of that. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We thank you for taking the time and listening, and we hope that you'll come back next week and we'll talk more about uh, where the Cowboys are in their camp and see if the Rangers can sustain this uh, success they've had since the All-Star break and the trade deadline. Uh, This should be a lot of fun. This fall there'll be more to talk about than just the Cowboys. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time.